There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you were looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen in for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and a big welcome to the Business Elevation Show. Um, it's a pleasure, as always, to be back again and uh, producing another show for you today, um, which I think is going to be uh, you know, an incredible conversation and, and a special one to listen to. Uh, thinking about special things, um, I, again, I just want to uh, give my credit to Owen O'Sullivan, the um, composer who very kindly uh, produced the uh, theme music to the show, which always gets me in a good place when I'm going to start about and talk about something that's kind of heartfelt and connected and important and and adding value. On last week's show, I had uh, my very good friends, uh, Jane Hansom, who's a, a world Ironman and triathlon champion and the uh, the founder of Sponge Marketing and does some amazing uh, marketing activity around the planet, actually, with uh, particularly lots of kind of fitness brands. And also Mike Pagan, uh, the speaker, and also um, endurance uh, kind of athlete, but in his spare sort of time, a little bit like myself. And we, we talked about our experiences from doing the quadrathlon in Scotland and you know, how fitness had kind of benefited our lives and how to, to really start to build your fitness up gradually, how it impacts your, you know, your, your livelihood, your success, your, your business, your work, and some of those kinds of benefits. And I think one of the key messages was you know, consistency, just keep on, you know, keep on exercising as, as much as you can each day and kind of build that up. And Jane did that over 10 years and went from um, being overweight and smoking um, through to within nine years being a world champion. So it just shows what can really be done uh, through taking your fitness seriously. And I think probably that theme of, you know, consistently doing something and, you know, keeping on and keeping on is a theme that is very relevant to the conversation today with with David Campbell and the founder of All Hands and Hearts. And we're going to talk today um, about mobilizing people, but also the incredible All Hands and Hearts story. Um, I should thank um, my, my very good friend, Jean Earlier, who introduced um, and first met David, um, I believe, over in Boston um, while doing a hosting a Leaders Quest event over there. And he said, this guy's special and what they do is special uh, and uh, was very keen to introduce us. Now, David Campbell completed a very successful 40-year technology career, uh, became CEO of two, of two public companies. And then he went alone to Thailand um, after the 2004 tsunami. And because he felt that he could use his IT experience and the Internet to tell stories, to try and attract people in, to kind of help um, what was a terrible, terrible disaster that many of us uh, will know well. Um, this adventure led to him founding All Hands and Hearts, which in the past 15 years has engaged over 50,000 volunteers and completed over 100 projects around the world in response to many, many disasters. He's been uh, recognized. He won um, uh, an award for $100,000 in 2014, the Purpose Prize. And he's had so much feedback. And I remember 
uh, what I looked at, uh, I think it was his TEDx video or, or, or maybe something online where uh, one of the people who, who were impacted directly, I think in Peru, you know, just, just described all hands and hearts as like angels falling from the sky, which I'm sure means even more than uh, the sort of monetary uh, benefit. And they won the 2013 Manhattan Institute Award for Social Entrepreneur of the Year. So a huge, huge welcome today to David Campbell. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. Yeah, brilliant to talk to you, David. I'm, uh, as I say, I'm genuinely really excited about talking to you today. And I've been reading your book as well, All Hands, which um, is well worth a read um, because it really does help sort of articulate the story and bring it to life as well. So let this, let's talk about this, um, this sort of story. I mean, All Hands and Hearts, it operates between this junction of poverty and disaster, and you've you know, you've mobilised a huge amount of people. You've used creativity, and you've built this incredible network of trust. And and it, it is something that uh, I'm sure you must feel, you know, when you uh, sit down and reflect, very very proud of. But what what were the the key inspirations? There must have been something, David, for you as a child that led you to this successful IT career, but also this deeply, you know, kind and supportive spirit, which I sense you have. Uh, well, maybe all great success starts with failure. Um, so one thing in my life, I guess, was when I was a freshman in high school and got cut from the basketball team and uh, was offended. So I thought, well, what's something I can do where only working harder than everybody else can give you a success? And I turned out to be a cross-country runner. And, and it turns out that, that knowledge that putting in extra effort over a long period of time, as you said, with consistency, you know, ends up generating success. And I think that was a useful experience for me. But uh, And I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and you know, started work at IBM, and then, as you mentioned, a couple of companies. So I was running a company in Buffalo. Buffalo was a challenged industrial city in the 70s and 80s, and that required business leaders to be involved in the community. And so that was part of the responsibility at that time of running a public company. We were a high-growth technology company. And so you know, I got involved in the community from chairing the United Way campaign and the Chamber of Commerce and chairing the Cancer Center. And so that level of engagement, I think, which was, I felt, part of my responsibility was maybe the first level of direct engagement where if you see a problem, you, your choice is do nothing or do something. And I found doing something expands and grows and gives you different kinds of rewards and different kinds of connections. I mean, were you brought up in a were you brought up in a household that was very supportive in that way? Did you, you know, did you? It, learn it was a, it was a stable household, but you know, civic engagement wasn't really part of the of the formula. But in you know, I so I was born in forty one. So so, but but in the you know, I went to you know, brought up Catholic, and so I had that sense of uh, schooling from high school through college, and I think. Um, responsibility for the community was always awareness but it wasn't something that was you know bred into me i would say yeah so you see so you, you you had this you you went to you know to run some significant businesses um which uh you know which you know how, how long did it take you to to go from you know leaving college to becoming a ceo and and running these large organizations well i would say yeah, it happened Six years at IBM and then, you know, joined some people that grew a company called Computer Task Group. And we grew that over 25 years to 4,000 people and listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And actually, that was a very good formative experience because, you know, I learned that you don't grow in a continuous line. You sort of grow step by step. And I can remember each of those five-year periods 
the strength we got, and that prepared us to go for the next phase. And and I remember very clearly uh, at one point in time around midway of that path of of defining our mission by creating a, a triangle with the three sides being our clients, our employees, and our um, investors our, and, and our shareholders. And management was in the middle of that triangle. And decades later, when I was looking at all hands and creating our model, the same concept came where the, the sides of the triangle became our volunteers, our donors, and the communities we serve. But frankly, the management challenges were very similar. You, you need to have a clear mission. You need to communicate it. You need to get people buy into it. And then you have to work with things like honesty and transparency, be clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you're addressing a problem that resonates with people, you can get support. So I actually find the management of a nonprofit, which I've been basically doing now for the 15 years, in a way it's harder than running a for-profit company. When you're running a for-profit company, if you're doing a good job, your clients will naturally come back to you. If you're running a nonprofit and you move in the disaster space, particularly from Haiti to Houston to Nepal to Mozambique, you sort of have to find donors who are interested in helping in those different situations. And so it's actually quite challenging. I, I bet it is because it, it requires you to, to, in every new location you're doing, uh, you know, a huge amount of research, I imagine, to understand uh, that particular, it's, it, every every job's a different location, a different case study. Correct. Absolutely. And again, we've grown stronger and stronger over time, and we now have the advantage of, you know, the scale. We have substantial staff, over 200 people now full-time, so that we can leverage their experience. It's a way of holding on to the expertise we build in the field, and we've evolved into a model as we adopted the phrase of come early and stay late, which we use around disasters like, you know, Nepal and Puerto Rico. And basically, the mix of staff allows us to absorb many volunteers and have that combined effect very productive. And so, you know, we can build multi-story schools. We can we can do, you know, home recovery. And it's it's an effective model because all of our staff basically come originally through the volunteer experience, but we're able to hold on to their expertise and give them an opportunity to learn management, to take leadership roles, to develop communication skills. And so in addition to serving the communities, which is very important, we're also developing mostly young people into substantial management experience. And that's a very important issue for us and, frankly, a very important contribution that we can make to this broader humanitarian space. One of the things that I often focus on when I'm talking at an all-hands meeting or on a project is for all volunteers and staff to recognize that we are a totally transparent organization and they can learn lots about organizational management by understanding our finances, looking at our marketing, understanding our communication approach, understanding how we assess what projects we're going to do. And we really are an open book. And I think we're a great management school, both for the staff who stay with us and for the volunteers who are exposed to us. Yeah, you provide a fantastic learning environment by the sounds of it, and uh, and you know, got that sense of your book how people kind of come through from you know, maybe helping out uh, through to joining in your structure and sometimes taking on quite senior roles. I want to just um, I want to just go go back a little bit because I I found the you know, very inspiring how 
you know, how you went on your own to uh, to Thailand uh, in um, 2004 with the when the tsunami, and I remember, you know, this meant a lot to me because I, I visited Phuket and Koh Phi Phi only a, a short while before this in in Thailand, and only two months before the tsunami, I was in Gaul and Bentota in Sri Lanka, which were very very badly hit as hit as well. Um, and I remember, you know, for me being moved to to kind of give what I could at that time. But you took it a step further. You you actually booked a flight and went. Um, not knowing anybody. So tell us a little about that story and how it's led to all hands and hearts. Well, two things. One, first, the tsunami was unusual. There are many massive disasters. This was a terrible one. But it happened over Christmas. So it happened December 26th. And as you may recall, there were not just the 230,000 lives that were lost, but many people were missing and then later found and reconnected. And so, number one, people were with their families. There was an exposure to this event. It went on for days and days and days. And so I think it had a much greater awareness, frankly, in the Western world than it would have if it had happened at another time of year. A second thing is that I happened to be sitting with a friend on December 28th, only two days later, who when I mentioned the tsunami, he said to me, David, 10 days ago, I was having lunch on the outer patio of the Meridian Hotel in Phuket, Thailand. Everyone on that patio two days ago was killed. It shocked me. And when I did the Google search, uh, the Meridian website popped up and, and acknowledged they had to close two of their three hotels in Phuket. But one was open, which all of a sudden said I could have a safe place to start. And the second set was they said we have high-speed internet access. And I, one of the companies I've been very involved with, a company called BBN Corporation in Cambridge, Mass., have been very involved with the development of the internet. And I thought, with all the negative news in the world, is it possible to use the internet to tell the real stories of what's going on on the ground? And I went with the anticipation, literally, of only staying 10 days. So something that happened 15 years ago now, um, I thought was a 10-day event. And my intent was to take enough equipment along, get on the internet, tell actual stories of fishermen who lost their boats or homes that were destroyed. And unanticipated by me was the fact that over the next few months, 300 people seeing those stories, came to the same place to say, we want to help. And the, the phrase that's used for SUVs represents spontaneous, unaffiliated volunteers. And most organizations say, stay home and send money. And since these people came, and after a massive natural disaster, there is so much to do that you can be productive immediately, even if it's clearing rubble from the road or chainsawing trees that have broken through houses. We ended up doing much more sophisticated things like connecting uh, fishermen who lost their boats with yacht clubs, and the yacht club would run a fundraiser, provide the funds, we would rebuild the boat, put the fishermen back to work. So we did use the internet in several ways, but I still... Even three months after the project, or the three-month-long project, I thought it was a one-time event. But then five months later, Hurricane Katrina hit the U.S., and we knew that everything we had learned in Thailand was relevant. That If we established a safe place for people to come, if we could make them productive from day one, if we made it easy for people to volunteer, that is, they could come for a day or stay for a month, they would come. And so we incorporated it as a nonprofit that weekend. And five weeks later, I had 216 people living in a church building in Biloxi, Mississippi, and really never looked back. I mean, it's all of our hands grew from that starting point. Amazing. So, you, so with a, with having a strong, you know, a purpose and people feeling, you know, compelled around 
um, wanting to help, and then you providing that that vehicle, that uh, uh, that environment and space with with some structure, uh, which I guess gives you know, security and confidence that that enable you to grow. Well, it, you know, part of it is, as you know, I use this phrase, network of trust. And from my public company experience, it was clear to me from day one that we would be absolutely transparent in every dollar we raised and where we spent it. Literally, the name comes from the fact that at the end of every working day, we have an all-hands meeting where within the program, people talk about what we did that worked and what didn't work. So there's a level of operational transparency that's, I think, essential. But part of it is also this coming together of people who want to help. There's a, you know, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, which is the best prize in life is working hard at work worth doing. And when you see people in such extreme need and you can actually do something to help them, our people work so hard. There's a, you know, there's Two of the quotes that I've overheard when I've been on programs that always endeared me, one one was someone saying, I'd never worked this hard if I was being paid, which I I just find interesting when we try to figure out how to motivate people and and, and what what gets them. And the other is watching our people, like when we're doing rubble clearing after demolishing unsafe buildings, and people are actually running with wheelbarrows. It's It's not something you see on a construction site. But our people are so motivated to help the communities because they recognize the needs are so great. And we know we're not going to be able to do everything, but we can do what we can do now. And so they want to do the most they possibly can do. And so it's clearly work that's worth doing. It's extremely hard work, but it's powerful to give people that vehicle where they can absolutely connect and have a purpose in what they're doing. And I I think there's lessons to be learned in that, how it motivates people to come together for a common cause. So, so I'm kind of kind of smiling to myself as I think about a building project that I had at home and how myself and some friends, we were running with, with wheelbarrows of, full of clay um, for a few days and you literally were running. But then I, I think back to when I first bought my home and had builders in for six months and they, they were they never ran anywhere. <laughs> they, they were there for the duration and they, you know, they did what they needed to do and got paid for it. But uh, yeah, there's a bit when you've got a real sense of, 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 uh, of wanting something finished and a real energy behind it, it it's uh, incredible, isn't it? We're going to go to commercial break now. And after, after the commercial break, we'll find out um, a bit more about some of the sort of growing pains you've experienced, but also you know, I'd be interested to know about some of the, like a big project like Haiti and that, how that prepared you for the next few years. So we'll be back again in just a couple of minutes. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific. Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, we're just um, chatting over the break, and I'm talking with David Campbell of uh, All Heart, Hands and Hearts. And uh, David and I were just talking and, and saying, you know, what an interesting world this is. And uh, you know, D- David's you know, just dealing with you're dealing with uh, different countries, in disasters, helping people, uh, you know, doing different kinds of roles that are required, dealing with um, political organisations and uh, politics and. Uh, you know, probably probably criminals sometimes, uh, all sorts of you know, people are donating. Um, but I imagine, you know, some of that when you're trying to, you know, develop your an organization, David, you know, must you, know, you must have felt some real growing pains at times, you know, dealing with all of these different facets and ensuring that you know you could keep an organization moving, you know, even though I guess imagine some of your people aren't hugely highly paid. No, they're vastly underpaid, generally speaking. And, you know, to some extent, we take advantage of people's passion to do this work. And and we feel a tremendous responsibility to be frugal in what we do because we're spending donor dollars. And the donors want those dollars to go to help the community. So we focus, you know, we're very proud about the fact that 96% of every donor dollar goes into the programs. And so we... And we work very hard to, again, present our information in a way that gets us very high ratings on on all the rating agencies. But part of that is really having staff that is so motivated by by the mission that they realize this is an opportunity for them to grow and learn in their personal responsibility. And that's part of the deal we have with them is we'll give you responsibility. We will help you as best we can, support you and encourage you and Compensation is not going to be the motivating factor for people who come for us. Mm. And, and, and uh, you know, how um, what have been the to- what have been the toughest times for you during this journey? Well, it was interesting. So, you know, you know, Katrina was we had again had fifteen hundred people come down to work, and there was a lot of interest in that because it was in the U.S. And to some extent, the next few years, we went. Uh, I had two great young people with me: one Darius Mansif, another young. 
guy named Mark Young who led our operations the next several years as we went around the world, Indonesia, Philippines, Peru, Bangladesh. Then I realized since most of our donors were still U.S.-based, we needed to have a stronger U.S. presence. So we did that 2008 to 10. Haiti in 2010 was a break point for us. Up until then, we had focused on the first three to six months after a disaster. We would come in, we would help clean up, we would help out, we would pull out because I felt that the rules somewhat were waived in those early months and that they started to change. But we had an amazing experience in Haiti. We had a, a person come and join us as a volunteer who worked for a, a major organization in New York, and he had such a positive experience that he went back and inside that organization, you know, extolled the benefits that we had had, and including when he brought his his college-age daughters out of the program, it actually reshaped one of their lives. And he told that story inside his company. And so his company gave us a, a quarter-million-dollar grant, which at that time was the largest we'd ever received. And there was so many needs in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake, we used those funds to establish a platform to rebuild schools. And we ended up rebuilding 20 schools. The cover of the book that you've seen is a young girl stepping into her new school in Haiti. But that required us to learn a new set of skills, to plan more than a year out in advance. But it was challenging, but also gave us great strength. It allowed our volunteers to plan their future out six and 12 months in advance. It allowed us to talk to donors about, here's a school building. You can see why the community needs it. So it was very clear to donors what we were doing. And it actually allowed us to engage local people in the community and teach them how to build earthquake resilient schools. And so that Haiti experience became the model that's carried us on into, you know, in the next year, we expect to be building schools in Nepal, Mexico, Mozambique, Peru, and the Philippines, all of which have been hit by major natural disasters. And where in the more rural parts of the country, schools have been destroyed that are not planned to be rebuilt. So, you know, we will be using that Haiti experience really as the core now approaching 10 years later in returning schools and returning the school to a community. It's like the, it tells the community they have a future. And so it's not just the building, it's the message of concern and hope for the kids that helps the community pull together. It's incredible. And you've, you've mobilized over 50,000 people now to help on your, your projects. And, and, you know, I'm wondering now, you know, from that learning that you, you've maybe had, if you went back, took yourself back into when you're running, you know, IT uh, firms. I'm wondering what your your top tips around mobilizing others are. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I have clients in the insurance industry, for example, and, uh, you know, they, they sometimes describe their products as being quite, quite bland and people just come to work and they renew insurance and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, what, what are your you know, tips in, in organizations that maybe don't quite have that, that purpose that yours, yours does around humanity? How can they maybe bring some humanity into what they do such that it brings more purpose? Well, I think part of it is always to connect to the end. There is a person at the end of all the processes we do, whether we're, you know, shipping food or insurance or running a bank. There's, there's a person that's going to be the end recipient eventually of what we do when we run a base we establish our base and we put it right in the community we're going to live in so that we become part of the community so our volunteers 
have that direct tactile relationship with the community, a personal relationship with the community. I think that's extremely important. The second thing is we have actually designed our organization to a great extent around the volunteer because I realized in both Thailand and then Katrina how important this volunteer experience was to people. So, for example, we don't charge volunteers anything. Number two, volunteers can come for a day or six months. We're totally flexible in how long they stay, as long as they're willing to work hard. So, we, and we've had volunteers now from over 100 different countries. So, when you're on a project in Nepal or Puerto Rico or anywhere, There'll be people from dozens of different countries of different ages. We we generally tend to have almost exactly a 50-50 female-male mix. But, you know, our oldest volunteer couple that I'm aware of was a 93-year-old man with a 79-year-old wife working on our project in Detroit after the flooding there. You know, 60% of our volunteers are under 30, and I, I like the fact that they get exposed to this level of intense purpose and organization early enough in their life to really make a major difference. But we've had a great set of volunteers in the 50-plus category that find that they can work at their pace. When I'm on project, I'm 77 years old now. I work at my pace. And when I I was mixing concrete with you guys on our school build project last year, I said, I'm sorry that I, you know, you guys can do two shovels for every one I do. And the guy's comment was, David, that's one we don't have to do. <laughs> so, so that's the positive attitude. The attitude is everyone's here to help. Everyone's help is appreciated at whatever pace they can work comfortably. And and at night, the conversation of different ages, of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, is a very rich part of the of the experience. Uh, I got asked by one of the airlines a year ago to write an article on favorite places to go. You know where they want you to go to the Caribbean or visit Paris or things and. And I wrote that my favorite place to visit is an all-hands project. It's where the, it's a positive attitude. There is no cynicism. People are united in purpose. People are happy, and they're working hard. It's, it's an incredible thing to see in a world where, the, in my view, there's too much negative news, that there are tremendous opportunities for productive work and optimism and people coming together to help people they didn't know before. And to me, that's really an incredible thing is that when we we don't recruit volunteers, we allow people to find us. And someone asked me once if we'll take anybody. And I said, well, if they search the internet and they'll pay their own way to get there and they'll work hard for people they, for nothing, for people they don't know, yeah, we'll take them. And frankly, that's a better selection process than when I was running companies of a few thousand people. And it's turned out to be that way. That's the purpose that brings them to us and our requirement that they actually work uh, maybe as an additional filter. But we have a highly motivated and highly productive workforce. Fantastic. And and how about the how about the youngest? Because I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, you know, this would be an amazing experience to take my kids. It's a great experience to go on with a multi-generation. I've been on projects with my grandson, for example, or five of my grandkids have been on project with us. So our general rule is 16, 18 alone or 16 with an adult, which can either be a parent or, uh, or a chaperone of a school group or something like that. Partly because, you know, most of our international projects are actually serious construction projects. Uh, but anyway, that's our general rule. Every now and then, we've had people who came out where we made an exception, but our general rule is 16 with an adult. It's a great experience to be on project. We've had several three-generation families, you know, a grandmother, mother, and daughter. 
come to project, work together, do different things. And uh, it's a very, very powerful experience. Right. But imagine if you've been on one of these experiences and uh, in, in a, a child who may be, you know, somebody a 16-year-old who's maybe you know, had life uh, a bit easy and uh, maybe maybe from a, a middle-class background and life's been reasonably reasonably comfortable for them and they've never had to work particularly hard to come into this environment when they see the need of work to, to work hard they see other people working hard it's a positive environment and they they see it's making a difference it has to be you know a very important learning experience for them really so i imagine it's a paradigm shift for some of them oh one of the things we do is we have every volunteer is uh really require but asked to do a survey when they leave project and those all those surveys are summarized and every two weeks I get a set of all the surveys across all the programs and I read those surveys even though there's several hundred of them and I there's two phrases that are the main recurring phrases and one is simply this has been an amazing experience and the other is the life-changing for people who live in a community in Nepal or Mozambique or Haiti or even the poverty-stricken areas of places like Houston or Florida or others, they really, most of our volunteers, haven't seen poverty in the way that these people live. And that exposure to the fact that people who are living in poverty work hard and are smart. They have to work so hard just to stay in place compared to where most of us in the Western world have started at a different place. And so I think they come away with respect and appreciation for the actual situation that those people are in and a much greater recognition of the situation that they are in. And I think it creates in them a sense of obligation that they have to give back. It's not simply a choice. It's an obligation. I think what a statistic you shared with me when we first spoke, which you might want might want to share, is I think people you know, sometimes people you know get into this sort of sense that um, you know, if, if they're doing quite well, they need to be earning a, a large, substantial amount of money for their own kind of you know status and feeling of self worth and esteem. But actually, you know, if you look at the the average amount of income across the world, um, there's a huge amount of the population who who manage on what many people in the West would think was impossible. Well, yeah, I was, I was asked to give a commencement address at a place called Canisius College this spring. And so to a, a group of graduates, I asked the leading question, if I could guarantee you a job that would put you in the top 1% income in the world, how many of you would take it? And, of course, everybody puts their hand up. And I said that number today is $32,400. That's the top 1% in the world, not in the U.S. or in the U.K., but in the world, and everybody pulls their hands down, and then it led me to say that you know the challenge we face in the world is poverty. Poverty affects health and affects education, and so, to a great extent, all hands and hearts works at the intersection of poverty and disaster. We go to those places that, because people are poor, they often also don't have political influence, so they're affected in many ways. Oftentimes, they're in governments that are not able to be, to effectively respond to a major natural disaster. And so we look at those places where the disaster has overwhelmed the community's ability to respond. We plant ourselves in that community. We work with the community to identify the greatest needs. And then we actually enable our volunteers to do something about it. So, you know, that's the model. And I, I you know, I think this fact of uh, 99% of people in the world living, you know, below $32,000 a year, uh, we all need to think about what we need for our world and what we should be doing to help others in the world. 
Yeah, it's interesting at you know, how you know there's a few very high net worth individuals who uh, you know have uh, uh, have net worth which is you know bigger than bigger than Contras or it's, yes, it's, for sure. Yeah. And for, for for those people, part you know again, and I obviously I was a capitalist, and frankly, you know, my ability to earn money has allowed me to do all hands for the past fifteen years as a, as both a donor and and as a volunteer, and so partly with that donor connection, it's what are your areas of interest and can we as an organization be a bridge of trust? Because basically all of our funding is private. We, you know, we have you know, almost no government funding because we find we know what we want to do and we want to do it the way we plan to do it. And so we depend on, it could be corporations, it could be private foundations, high net worth individuals is an important source of support for us. But, you know, now we've had enough expertise and experience that we now have over 50,000 public donors. And so we need to keep our communication to them, but, but really offer them a way to help. And, you know, like building a school is, is, is not just the school. It's actually also, you know, affects, you know, poverty in that area. It affects skill development. It affects future planning. And so we really look at the, the work we do can be looked at in many different ways. It's, you know, disaster relief. It's poverty addition, attraction. It's helping with education. It may be helping with clean water because we'll, as part of our solution for a school, we'll provide sanitation solution and so on and so forth. So in these communities, we often move the community to a better place. And that's important. Fantastic. We've got just um, three minutes to commercial break now. I just wanted to you know, ask you a question. I, I've, sure. I've been, as I get older, I've been amazed by the incredible power of serendipity. And uh, you, know, you have a chapter in your book which describes serendipity as a strategy. And there's a lovely <laughs> story about, you know, in Japan, I think it was a guy, Henry Takata, you, you know, serendipitously met. And, uh, and I just uh, wonder, you know, your, your perspective on this, because I, I can imagine there's so much opportunity for this to occur and it must lead you to interesting places. Well, there are. There's, actually, it had happened to me enough times that I found myself going out and trying to understand it. And I actually came across a quote by uh, a Canadian speaker by the name of Basil King. And it was, you know, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Yeah. It, it doesn't really make sense. But if you're there and doing and people believe that you're there for good, you pull out of them a desire to support you. And I didn't expect that, but as I found it time and time again, now I do expect it. I, we make a point of when we go into a community of saying, here's who we are, here's what we're going to do, here's how long we're going to do it. Don't worry about making a decision about us now. We'll visit you again in two months, five months, six months, and you can see what we're doing. So let us earn street credibility. And when we're there doing we do attract people who then use us as a platform for other ways to help the community. So I have learned to depend upon it. And frankly, that dependency has always been met. Fantastic. And sometimes it's just so, so coincidental that, you know, the odds almost seemed impossible, don't they? When you just meet that person with, when the serendipity has been so great, it just, it's, it's completely bizarre. Um, I've met enough good contacts sitting next to them on planes and sometimes I think I just fly around all the time because then you get an extended conversation and when people understand what we do they would like to be part of it yeah amazing we're going to go to commercial break now after the break we're going to find out uh, a little bit more probably about you know how you raise funds and uh, and uh, you know we've got to like to I want to find out a little bit about how this has impacted you because you've shown enormous commitment personally to this 
uh, in terms of your own time. Um, and as you mentioned, you're 77, though I, I couldn't quite believe that. Having <laughs> you Obviously, this kind of work also keeps you young. So we'll find out a bit more about that after the break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper I'm with David Campbell. If you've got any comments on this show, you know, do email me and uh, and I'll share, share them with David as well. Uh, it's always great to hear them. Um, we had a show recently with Mansoor Malik and uh, literally inundated with notes and so was he and it was just it, you know, it was just tremendous, tremendous feedback that we so appreciated and was was very, very inspiring. So, you know, please if you're if you're inspired by this, do let us know. Um, and uh, we're always open to, to ideas and thoughts as well. Uh, Chris at chriscooper.co.uk. So um, we're talking a little bit about serendipity uh, before the break. And I know, David, that you, you had a merger and that was also kind of serendipitous in its origins as well. And that's you know, enabled you to grow. Share, share a little bit about that with us. So that's quite fascinating. Certainly. So we had a, a wonderful merger. It's now going into its, well, we finished two years. Uh, so there's a wonderful woman named Petra Nemkova. Petra was actually in Thailand when the tsunami hit, was injured, lost her fiance. But, but Petra was so moved by the needs after the tsunami that she created an organization called Happy Hearts Fund and focused on replacing schools destroyed by natural disasters. And, and we met in 2007, but we weren't yet in the school building business. We met again in Nepal in 2015, and since we were both there with a rather common purpose, we ended up working together in 2015 and 16 and decided to merge the two organizations on the fact that we had such common purpose and, frankly, common beginnings, and we really felt we would be better together. Uh, Petra is a supermodel, wonderful woman. She's uh, one of the UN uh, Office of Disaster Risk Reduction ambassadors trying to help with tsunami early warning systems, etc. But her passion is getting kids back in school after disasters. And she doesn't want kids to lose those years of learning 
or they'll be lost for their lifetime. And so her passion really matched, frankly, our execution ability. And we announced the merger in September of 2017. And and then it really gave us, uh, I think, much greater exposure when this series of hurricanes from Harvey and Irma and Maria hit. And our greater exposure, frankly, contributed to substantially increased fundraising part of it. And that's allowed us to simply execute so much more. So, you know, we're now about a $15 million a year organization. Uh, Petra and I are the co-founders of it. We're both very active on the board. And, and we think we've created a stronger organization that can do those things that we initially both aspired to and actually do much more together. Well, so, sounds um, yeah, sounds sound lovely to any of you. You come together with with others who are like minded and uh, and create something that uh, enables you to you, you to grow and um, and imagine um, you know Petra's you know great ambassador for the whole organisation uh, too. Now you've been um you've been a man on a mission for for many years now, and I, I'm kind of intrigued as to how you know how when. Perhaps at a time in life, you might have had the means to kind of maybe, you know, settle down and, uh, and you know, re- relax a bit and have nice holidays. And you, you chose a, a different path for yourself. And, you know, I wonder how that's impacted your family, you know, and, uh, you know, how you maybe you've overcome that together. I imagine that they're proud and inspired, but I'm imagining sometimes they've been a bit worried about your safety and things like that. So how's all that worked? This worked well. I would give my wife a lot of credit. Her quote when I stayed in Thailand, you know, week after week after week was, I thought I was married to a CEO. Now I think I'm married to a monk. (laughs) Uh, but as i mentioned to chris earlier she took the photo that's on the cover of the book which is on amazon by the way um, of a young girl stepping into a school she's a great photographer she's been on dozens of projects with me we've i guess next month we'll celebrate our 56th wedding anniversary so we've gotten through it together for sure um you know my kids have been on project you know five of my grandkids have been with me i went off uh, the day after christmas uh, 18 months ago with my my oldest grandson and the two of us went to our project in Nepal together. That's pretty sweet. Uh, I think it's a great model for my family and for my friends. Uh, people want to be part of something, frankly, that's pretty pure, pretty noble, pretty clear that it's doing, you know, meeting an obvious need and it's doing it in an effective way. And so I find it, you know, gives me energy. Being with the young people on project gives me confidence, gives me energy, gives me hope. And I see the people come away from our projects changed. They have a more optimistic view of an individual's ability to have an impact. They have a new set of friends from all around the world. We have a very active alumni network where people can help each other with jobs and communication and so on. I've got one of our former people staying in my house tonight. Um, the number of I was in Prague last month where we were doing a fundraiser and had dinner with two people who met on project and were showing me pictures of their first child so it's not just the communities that we help you know we've actually helped people come together in their own partnerships fantastic you've uh, a huge uh, a huge community there that you've created a a big family by the sounds of it it's an extended family yeah and it's a warm and loving one and it's a place that I'm happy to be so, yeah, I'm proud of it. I don't like to be proud. I, it's not something that I aspire to, but I am proud of what all hands and hearts is, what it does, and how we've come to become effective over this period of time. Amazing. Amazing. And how, um, you know, how, 
Any, any lessons around sort of bringing in funds? I mean, I, I, on a very small scale, I, I just raised char- funds for you know a couple of charities, did a tough endurance event, and and I probably put more time into the raising the funds and the fifteen and a half hours of sort of strenuous exercise doing the doing the event. Um, but you know, I know you know it is it is it is not always easy to persuade people to part with cash. Uh, any any thoughts from your experience? Well, it's not easy. I mean, part of the things that allowed our organization to become successful at this new larger level is the fact that, you know, candidly, when I passed 70, I believe the model had become proven, but I wanted to make certain that the that the organization survived. And so I went out deliberately to search for and find a successor as CEO of the organization. I found a wonderful young man named Eric Dyson, who's now been with us over six years, and he brought us added to mine, but we you know we brought a strong business management perspective to the organization because fundraising is like generating revenue in a for-profit business. You have to invest in it. You have to explain your product. So for us, our website, you know, the allhandsandhearts.org is our face to the world. It's our face to volunteers and donors, but it's we work hard at having it tell our story and tell it well. We invest in information technology so we can manage our donors and know who supported us and when and for for what reasons. We're investing in staff so we can keep the best of our staff and their expertise from the field. And the organizational strength has been a major benefit of bringing Eric on board six years ago. I'm chair of the board and we have a very strong board, but... You know, Eric has led the development of a very strong organization where in each component from development to marketing to program management, we have people who have completely bought into the mission and work together so we can deliver the best possible result. So you have to you have to find people management who are driven by the mission. And we do have people who are driven by the mission. That's where you've got you know, over 100 projects to date. And you know, it sounds like you've now this incredible organization and structure and team and ambassadors you know where is um all hands and hearts heading you know what's what for you is not not complete well number one the disaster world is massive and frankly it needs a lot of help it's interesting here's an inner to me an interesting stat in that basically in my lifetime or if we go from 1927 to year 2020 the population of the world will have gone from 2 billion to 8 billion. You know, it took the world until 1800 to get to a billion and 100 years to get to 2 billion, and it's grown from 2 billion to 8 billion in the next less than 100 years. You know, half of those people are, in, are in, within 100 kilometers of the sea, of the water. So they're vulnerable to flooding, tsunami, hurricane effect, and so on and so forth. So it's one of the reasons why, of course, there's climate change happening, which, which exacerbates it. But simply the growth of the population vulnerable to disasters means the disaster world grows. We're still a tiny part of the re- response to it. So our objective is we, we can't, not do something because we can't do everything. We have to do what we can do. And our my view is we have to be a model of how something can be done. We have to demonstrate the most effective way to repair roofs in Puerto Rico. We have to demonstrate the most effective way to build a school in Nepal that's earthquake resistant. If we can be a model of how something can be done, that's a valid aspiration for us. We don't have an aspiration for great size I want to maintain our culture. I want to maintain our integrity. I want to maintain the quality of the volunteer experience, frankly, because the scale of human needs from disasters is thousands of times our capacity. 
So I want us to be the best at our model. And I believe today we are. And that's very important to me that we remain committed to that. What an, what an incredible legacy. Incredible legacy. I wonder if, you know, if we we now sort of we're coming to the end of the interview and uh, we've been obviously talking about your story and about mobilizing people. I just wondered if you had some, you know, some final messages that you would like to leave us with. Well, I think if people, I think the volunteer experience can be a powerful one, but we actually organize around the volunteer. And I think systems or organizations that simply try to tack volunteers onto another system, I don't think that works so well. So I think if people want to tap the power of volunteers, you really need to design a system that makes it productive for the volunteer. Our, our volunteers are only mad when the van's five minutes late to pick them up to the work site, right? They, they want to get out to work in the morning. And so designing your system to allow volunteers to be productive, I think, is a key to a great volunteer experience and then bringing the volunteers back. And I think the other would be just total transparency with donors, with volunteers, with with communities, what you can do and what you can't do. That, you know, you have to have the courage to step off a safe place and go into a new place in the confidence you're going to be effective there. And just the honesty of this is what we can do, the transparency to share it. I think those are the things that are characteristics that have allowed our organization to be successful. Fantastic. And pe- people can help by seeking you out and volunteering and um, help by donating is there any, any other ways they can help well you know allhandsandhearts.org is the website I'm simply David at allhandsandhearts.org happy to get emails and communication from people but you know volunteer with us donate with us or invite us to come and talk to a group you know I can do it or obviously we now have volunteers in every country and basically in every city so if someone's interested in understanding more about our story it comes best from the mouth of one of our experienced volunteers. So we're happy to respond to any information requests like that. Fantastic. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. It's a fascinating, incredible story. And you do, all of you at uh, All Hands and Hearts and all those volunteers that have have helped uh, in your community, you know, full full respect. Um, It's it's amazing what you do. And you sort of inspired me. You know, I'd love... uh, when my children are just a little bit older to um, to come and volunteer as well and experience that with you. Um, so, yeah, so thank you so much for being on the show today. Loved it. Thanks very much, Chris. You're very welcome. And then, um, so all, allhandsandhearts.org and David at allhandsandhearts.org if you want to connect uh, with David. And on next week's show, a uh, different, different show, I've got um, Andrew Tarvin, calls himself Drew Tarvin, and he's spoken to over 35,000 people now and over 250 organizations about uh, about the, the the value of humor and uh, using humor in the workplace. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a, a humorous and informative show next week. But once again, huge thank you to David. You know, please do um, connect with me. Um, do um, also uh, sign up to the newsletter at chriscooper.co.uk um, because we can keep you informed about what's, uh, what's going on. And uh, wish you all well. And I'd say huge thank you to All Hands and Hearts uh, founder, David Campbell. Thank you for listening to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Be more. Achieve more.